Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, welcome to a special edition of the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California and today's program on the international monkeypox outbreak. First, I want to say that the Commonwealth Club thanks Gilead Sciences for its generous support of the Michelle Miao Show at the club. Additional support for today's program comes from Renegade Bio. And a shout out to Transconique for providing some help with our pre-show program today. And thank you for joining us today, whether you're here in the room or watching or listening online. Uh, the Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, public forum that, that produces hundreds of programs a year on a wide variety of topics. You can find uh, all of our upcoming programs as well as video and audio of our past events at commonwealthclub.org. Um, in addition to everyone here watching in the room, we are live streaming this and, of course, recording it for podcast and our television program. So if you're in the room and you've got a cell phone or some other noisemaker, please silence it. If you're watching, you can let it beep all you want. It doesn't matter to us. Um, now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao. She is the producer and the host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Hello again, Michelle. Let's get started. <laughs> thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you who are joining us this evening, as well as those who are joining us virtually. If you're here for the first time and hearing of the Michelle Miao Show for the first time, I always like to tell folks that the program is all focused on your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone <laughs> in between. Um, we have a special program tonight. And I know that this has been on top of many people's minds, especially for many folks in our community. And while we have more information about MPX, maybe a little bit about what it is, uh, there are a lot more questions that we obviously need to ask in order for us to keep everybody healthy. And so our esteemed panelists, our speakers today, are all here to answer your questions and, of course, our questions, John and I. And we'll get right into just, you know, addressing what's happening, what's going on, but how do we prep for our near future? How do we deal with this? How do we address it all? And so let me introduce to you our speakers. We have Dr. Erica Pan, our very own California State Epidemiologist, also Deputy Director for the Center for Infectious Diseases, also a clinical professor, Department of Pediatrics at the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases for University of California, San Francisco. We have Dr. David Rodriguez, uh, who is professor of emergency medicine and associate chair of research at the Department of Emergency Medicine at UCSF. Craig Ruski, who is co-founder and CEO of Renegade Bio. Um, we have some very exciting things that we'll talk to Craig <laughs> about, especially when it comes to testing. And Dr. Tyler Tremier, who is the CEO of San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Let's welcome our speakers tonight. I'll start with the state of where we are with MPX. Uh, the CDC had, had uh, just reported today, actually, that there are nearly 60,000 cases globally, and a little over 22,000 of those cases are here in the United States. And so just a few months ago, you know, the local news, as well as my social media feeds, probably yours, would describe the response to the rising cases of MPX in California as somewhat chaotic. People shared how difficult it was to get vaccines, 
having to stand in line for hours only for the vaccines to run out. Local elected leaders declared state of emergencies and news reporters shared images uh, that we probably, or, you know, continues to traumatize us of what MPX looks like if you get infected. So I'd love for each of our speakers here to share, you know, your own experience in your respective roles of what the response was like for you. When did it become an issue? What was going on? And we'll start with Dr. Rodriguez. Thank you. Um, so I'm an emergency physician at San Francisco General, which is the uh, county public hospital for the, the county and city of San Francisco. And as such, we're, we are the safety net of the safety net, where we serve a highly vulnerable population. Um, a lot of people whose only health care access occurs in emergency departments. They don't have uh, private doctors. Uh, they are our patients um, really only chance to get medical care is uh, in the emergency department. And this this population uh, has been highly affected by both the covid pandemic and by MPOX. Um, this uh, includes disproportionate numbers of Latinos, African-Americans, homeless persons, uh, uh, immigrants and, and, and so forth. And so, um, we serve this population and we also serve as sort of a, a canary in the coal mine with regards to various infectious diseases, um, especially in, in vulnerable groups. So we saw pretty early on, I'd say we saw some of the first few cases of MPOX. Uh, diagnosed here in the Bay Area in the emergency department. Um, and, uh, you know, that was early this summer. And, uh, you know, the, all the, the uh, news and information about it was pretty early at that time. Uh, and uh, there, were, there was a lot of, I would say, uh, fear in, in that, uh, early at that early time in with regards to MPOX. And uh, there were a lot of people also presenting with various, you know, other rashes and things like that, that who were concerned that they might have MPOX. So um, I, I would characterize as that, that initial period as I agree that it was somewhat uh, chaotic. Um, but pretty, I, I'd say pretty rapidly... Uh, as information came through and we, you know, uh, were able to get test people, um, it, it uh, I think it settled down fairly, fairly quickly from our standpoint. Thank you. Dr. Pan. Sure. So speaking from the California Department of Public Health perspective, we, of course, were, well, of course, uh, still working on our pandemic response after two and a half years. And uh, we have what we call a medical health coordination center that is still activated as we are dealing with response. And thinking we were going to take a moment to pause as things uh, were looking a little better, although seeing this more recent swell, we'd been watching closely the outbreaks that were happening in Europe and other countries. Um, and we actually, after our first few cases uh, in May, we actually activated our medical health coordination center to to work on just making sure we 
set up a team that was separate than COVID-19, although trying to think about how to leverage a lot of the same resources to respond, to work, and, you know, be on the calls with the CDC and others and uh, really kind of follow the evolving information, working with our local health departments, and really importantly, working with our community-based organizations and some of our stakeholders that, thankfully, we have um, improved networks not only through COVID-19, but just long-term established networks with our HIV um, and STD providers and stakeholders and networks. So, um, of course, the hardest part, and to your point about the lines, is, you know, the only, this vaccine, I mean, there are pros and cons to this. This vaccine um, was already available as opposed to a brand new novel disease, like when COVID-19 first came. When there was a vaccine, it was approved, but very, very few of it. I mean, we still... Uh, you know, we made an estimation that in California, we'd probably need at least 800,000 doses or so. And we've now given about 160,000 doses. But um, it's a very scarce vaccine. It's only available in the strategic national stockpile and only through government resources. So it's not something that you can just easily that a pharmacy can order or a provider can order. It has to go through all those sort of levels and ordering it from the federal government. So I think, you know, clearly whenever you have a scarce resource, it's really difficult. And I do think we've used a lot of, uh, again, great infrastructure that we've improved over the course of the pandemic to improve the delivery and, and again, working with providers. But but I think that is why there was so much frustration that there just wasn't enough. Um, and so trying to work at all levels to get good messages out um, and, and get vaccine to the highest risk people, but knowing that there just wasn't enough. Dr. T. Yeah, you know, a um, a public health crisis, a moment where a community is left feeling abandoned by the federal government in a moment where, yet again, a group of cisgender and transgender individuals, non-binary folks that have the same social and sexual networks are being impacted by a disease that we know about, but we are learning about moment by moment and a real feeling of fear, anxiety, and very tangible pain. Um, I could be describing 40 years ago, 1982, the first cases of HIV in our country, but I'm describing 2022, um, the start of monkeypox. And what we at San Francisco AIDS Foundation have been saying since late May, early June, Um, was a moment where we needed to be ringing the alarm. We saw what was happening in Europe. We saw the first reported cases, and we started worrying about what would happen in our pride season with San Francisco being such a destination place for queer folks to come um, to celebrate loud and proud who they are and to express themselves. We did everything we could to prepare our workforce to start educating the community And what we didn't have because of the federal failure in this moment was access to vaccine. Um, And by the time Pride Weekend came and went here in San Francisco, we still didn't have vaccine into the hands of our community clinics. It was June 30th by the time our clinic, Strut in the Castro, received our first doses of vaccine and we received 90, um, of which we alone at our clinic would have needed something like 6,000 doses to get through our pre-exposure prophylaxis population in the former subcontinuous two-dose strategy. And we really started to panic. Um, We didn't know what the plan was. We were hearing mixed messages. And I think we worked as well as we could in a very complicated moment with our partners at state and local health and with our community-based partners to come up with strategies with what we knew 
was going to be a difficult time. That meant figuring out how we could draw on the lessons from COVID-19, how to effectively scale up vaccine testing and treatment in the most equitable ways possible. And we knew from that time period that that meant that we needed vaccine in the hands of trusted community partners who have long relationships of trust, especially in communities of color or those who have long histories of medical mistrust in our community. Um, but we also knew that in the absence of having enough um, of a robust biomedical response, enough vaccine in our community, that we were going to have to come up with some pretty important um, sex positive harm reduction based messaging, especially as we headed through the rest of our street festival season here in the community and until there was an answer, either more uh, vaccine or until we arrived at this moment of um, a state of emergency at the city, then state, then federal level, and then a pathway towards a new form of vaccination through the intradermal uh, injection. But the efforts um, are going to be ongoing. You know, I think um, we at our peak had over 12,000 people on our waiting list really working to get folks out um, to the mass vaccination sites. We're a small clinic compared to the other sites, um, but we were doing our best to, to get people connected. Um, and then the other ways that we responded in this work were try by trying to be a source of information through town hall um, meetings in a virtual space in both English and in Spanish by ensuring language equity was lifted up during this time so that folks had the resources that they needed and the language um, that they may need to access it in. And then um, hearkening back to the very first program of San Francisco AIDS Foundation, we launched a hotline very early and had been answering calls um, ever since that first reported case here in the Bay Area. Wow. Yeah, from um, Renegade Bio's perspective, you know, we're a science-based organization. Uh, we work, you know, in the public benefit to bring novel cutting-edge diagnostics to people who need them the most. And, you know, when, when we heard the call from CDPH that we needed, they needed support in, in testing, uh, we quickly mobilized to develop an assay that was more sensitive than what was currently available in an effort to earlier detect the virus pre-lesion. Um, the, the idea here is that the sensitivity of the test um, being so low means that you can, you can reach someone before the, the virus has erupted into the painful lesions. And so we, you know, and when I say we, I mean myself, I was in the lab uh, doing, doing testing and designing um, the assay and really deploying that at Dory Alley. We had a, a great um, event there where we tested 380 people to see if we could, um, in partnership with UCSF and CDPH, um, to make sure that we could earlier detect this virus and um, and, you know, support our community. Again, we learned in COVID that um, early decentralized approaches to uh, infectious disease outbreaks is the way to go, right? We need more people working uh, in a decentralized fashion across the country to address these crises. Um, we continue to, to develop assays. Uh, we continue to plan our studies. In fact, we're going to Palm Springs at the end of October for the leather weekend to reach our community there and make sure that uh, this virus isn't spreading any further. Um, I will say, you know, on the end of COVID, 
uh, we were very um, exhausted, I guess is the, <laughs> is the best word. Um, and it was, it was actually really uh, challenging to make the shift from, okay, we're addressing COVID as a real crisis to MPX. And there was this sort of delay um, in severity, right? And it wasn't until CDPH reached out in the name of sort of public-private partnership that we were able to really get going and support the community. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're continuously, continuously here for the community and, and look forward to continuing our support. When you have something like a new virus come out or, you know, something that most people are not familiar with, obviously there's a lot of questioning. What, what is it really? What are we talking about? What are the dangers? How do I know if I have it? Um, and, of course, you have associated misinformation. Starting with you, though, I'm going to ask this probably in a different way to, to a number of you, but with you, Dr. Pan, give us the basics on monkeypox then. What is it? How does it appear on people? You know, I mean, what, what, how does it manifest? And, of course, then what should people do when they either fear it or actually realize they have it? Sure, I'll start, and then Dr. Rodriguez yeah. might want to add too. But um, you know, uh, so mpox is a virus. It's sort of uh, I call it a cousin of other viruses like um, uh, the smallpox virus. It's it's called an orthopox virus, and it can cause basically uh, a serious rash. It often or classically will start sometimes with just flu-like syndrome, like fever, maybe sore throat, um, and then people can develop a rash. And I think what's been different with this 2022 epidemic is a lot of people have not had that what we call prodrome or having that flu-like syndrome first and might just have the rash. And I think some of the rashes have been not as typical. Um, they look like blisters, and you know sometimes we have a word in medicine that looks like it might have a little belly button, a little dimple in the middle. But again, it hasn't been classic in everyone this time. And I think sometimes people have had lesions in their genital areas or their perianal areas and not really realize they might have them. Um, it's apparently quite painful, as, as um, was mentioned. Um, and again, because it's a cousin of smallpox, this is why we do have a vaccine that is there, but just not enough of it. Um, and there is... Uh, a, not, uh, there's also a experimental, not experimental, sorry, investigational um, authorization for an antiviral treatment as well that has been tested and, and looked at. So we had some tools that we didn't have early on with a brand new virus, um, but, but there's definitely things that we're learning about the virus in 2022 that were different than, for example, when it had been seen uh, you know, in different countries in Africa. Um, I think it's really transmitted as far as how it's spread from skin-to-skin contact, right? So it certainly impacted... Um, networks that, you know, and it's really, there's a lot of questions about, is it a sexually transmitted disease? I think we will all definitely agree it's sexually transmissible, right? How do you have sex without having skin-to-skin contact? But then how do you distinguish that? Um, And clearly, I think, with with sex. And, and on the heels of a pandemic, just to make a comment too, people are craving human contact. Like it's really hard to ask people um, to not do things. And there's also, we've asked you from the public health side to do a lot of things that people are really tired of, of not being able to do. So I think it's really challenging as far as trying to empower people, give you know, good harm reduction messages. But, um, but those are kind of some of the key things I would highlight. I don't know if Dr. Rodriguez, if you want to add anything else. But Yeah, I would say that... Uh... You know, initially there was a, a lot of fear in terms of diagnostically. People, we had saw a fair number of people coming in with various rashes, concerned that they they might have mpox, and and um, you know now we know a bit more, as Dr. Pond described, and and uh, about its epidemiology and about um, how it presents, 
And uh, I, I'd say that the one sort of semi-reassuring thing is that, you know, there's this very, very low fatality. And I, th- I believe there's only been one fatality in, in the U.S. And Los Angeles case? I, I think it was in Houston. Okay. But, um, El Los Angeles, yeah. 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 And, um, but, uh, you know, that's not to diminish the, the you know, the gravity or the severity of the symptoms or, or the disease or to, but um, it is, uh, you know, it is, um, we can diagnose it now and with, with testing and, and uh, the right clinical scenario. And so uh, it's, I, I would say, kind of less mysterious. It, it, early on in the, the COVID outbreak, there was a lot of uncertainty and people were kind of getting conflicted, conflicting messages and changing messages. Um, so if someone thinks that they're worried about it, should they feel pretty confident that if they go into a doctor, they would be able to be diagnosed or tested? I would say, you know, it, it really depends on the, the, the doctors of, of, uh, whether they have the test available. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how, uh, you know, various clinics or how available the test is at various clinics. I, um, I think you got yeah, I, I would just say that, um, well, you know, for the 40 plus years of the HIV epidemic, our job um, working in the field has been to find ways to humanize um, HIV for people who haven't always understood it or to try and break down the stigma associated with it and to ensure that the workforce is educated on what to look for and how to communicate it and communicate about it. I would say that what we were hearing loud and clear from patients across the country um, and here in the Bay Area was that there were experiences early on because we were learning every day where they were going in with what they were uncertain about what it may be um, and providers didn't have all the information that they needed. So there were people who um, thought that, you know, it wasn't impox or the provider didn't know that that's what they should be testing for. Or there wasn't testing readily available or they were sent um, in very real pain away to try and find a testing site or something to manage their pain. It took a lot of um, on the ground resilience from the community, very similar to the beginning days of the HIV epidemic where community was educating one another about where to get access to testing how to advocate for treatment before all of the red tape around treatment was broken down. Um, This was a moment where community was finding access through text messages and Twitter feeds um, and not through a robust set of public health messaging until we could get our act together and start coordinating and communicating in a way that was reaching all parts of the community. And I would say even in this moment, um, I spoke recently at a press conference and felt like for the first time, we could take a bit of a deep breath because it feels like things are plateauing and declining um, and lines aren't as long and phone trees aren't as long. Mm -hmm. Um, But that certainly doesn't mean um, that we can let up um, in our response. And if we are truly trying to learn from COVID-19, we know that there are still very real communities that don't feel comfortable coming into clinical settings um, that have not yet accessed the vaccine and still meet and still may be at very high risk for impacts. Um, many of those communities are not going to get 
tested or vaccinated for something that still is very stigmatized as a disease impacting LGBTQ communities, especially communities of color. And so we need to figure out what are those ways that we can create health access points where you might be showing up because you need a flu shot or COVID or impacts. I think that's what public health is really working with our community-based partners now to implement across the state. Dr. Gorski, obviously we've been talking a lot about testing. <laughs> are all tests for monkeypox the same? What? How should people... Yeah. Get the right one that they need. Yeah, the thing is, you know, we when we started testing for MPX, MPOX, um, you know, the um, it was very obvious what we were looking at, right? It was this viral genome, 190 KB long, and we were looking at one specific fragment. Um, the CDC then re- released um, their next generation sequencing data that showed that the portion of the genome that everyone is testing for has been deleted. Um, so it's like, well, we're getting negative results all of a sudden, very confounding results in the laboratory. And, you know, what are we actually, where's the development, right? I'm not entirely convinced. Everyone's saying that this is leveling out or plateauing. And I know our community has been vaccinated, but I'm not entirely convinced that this is like gone and that we're just not able to pick it up in a reliable, reproducible way. Um, so we, you know, we continually develop our tests to make sure the sensitivity is there, to make sure that we're improving. And, you know, our, our diagnostic looks specifically at the total nucleic acid of the virus. So that's RNA and DNA. And we really, you know, we really believe that this is, um, this is the way to, to improve sensitivity and to make, to make sure that we're picking up the true virus. Um, and we always reflex to sequencing as well to confirm that what is a positive is an actual positive. As far as the community response, I don't know if you were <laughs> on the, the WhatsApp groups and the, the Facebook groups that were like community talking with community of how do I get a test? And so many times was it like, how do I, you know, typing back, how do I, um, send someone to you to get you this test, and we would coordinate with our mobile phlebotomy partners to go pick up samples and bring them back to our lab for testing because no one knew where to go. Um, and that's, that's still the case. I still get those text messages of, how do I get a test today? And it's like, well, there's so much red tape at this point where you have to find a physician that offers the test that's in partnership with someone who can process a MPX test and somehow get the results for that test. It's, it's problematic um, for the community that this is impacting. I don't know if you would agree, Dr. T. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I will say that things are so much better than when we first started. Like, at first, it was almost impossible to find a test. Mm-hmm. Um, and the state has done a really good job of figuring out how to expand their ability to test folks. Um, But then again, um, going back to all of the same equity conversations, I think where um, some communities feel comfortable receiving their care and access um, is just very different due to very valid reasons of of medical mistrust. Mm -hmm. So go ahead, Dr. Pan. Just one other quick thing I would add to is I think it is important to acknowledge that so uh, this virus has been 
it's been around for decades, but we haven't seen it in the United States in any significant way until this year. We had, you know, an outbreak in 2003. It was really associated with animal exposures. Um, we've monitored some patients, you know, over time that have been exposed uh, in other countries. But this is definitely a new disease to clinicians in the United States. And and then you layer onto that healthcare access in general, and you layer onto that communities that you know may not be going, may not have access to clinics where they feel comfortable. Um, so I think there are, there's a lot of work to do. I want to acknowledge that. And I think a lot of awareness to, to increase around clinicians. I think, you know, we're here in San Francisco, and thankfully I think there's a lot, a lot of knowledge here where you're having this show about this. But I think there are parts of the state and certainly parts of the country where, you know, there's a lot of clinical awareness I think we need to increase. And um, so... And I agree. I don't think I think things are absolutely improving. Thank goodness. And we the other way we're looking is, um, you know, another great infrastructure we're continuing to build from the pandemic that we are able to look at with MPOX is wastewater surveillance. So that is something that isn't as dependent on people coming in to testing. And those trends do seem to be looking like they're improving, too. But I think we need to continue to increase the resources and the awareness for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so several of you here are on the stage have already mentioned the red tape. And I'm very interested to find out, you know, the specifics about the red tape that you mentioned. Uh, especially, you know, when we, we, we look at this, it seems very reactionary, right? Like Dr. T had mentioned, and many of us who follow at least LGBTQIA plus news, I mean, it was alarming to hear from Europe. And I think many of us were already worried, like there's just no way that, you know, it isn't going to, get here to the United States, but at the same time, it's not that, oh, great, it's not here in the United States. We don't have to worry. I mean, our community is global. So I'd love to start with Dr. Pan. I mean, is there a criteria? How does it work? How do we operate? I mean, elected officials had to declare emergencies in order to get funding, in order to get vaccines, and it, that's the way that it's playing out, in, and I'm just a... Uh, normal human being, <laughs> you're just a worried resident, by the way, not a, not a scientist, not a health official, not an elected leader, but walk us through, you know, this red tape. Dr. Pan. Sure. Well, I think, uh, you know, harkening back to things like, so if there's a resource that's only available in our strategic national stockpile, you have to go through different processes to release that, to then distribute it, allocate it. And there's a lot of logistics around that as well. I think the other important thing that is challenging is balancing with an emerging disease, um, you know, especially, again, if you don't have familiarity with that in the sort of in the United States, for example, trying to balance getting access quickly, but also still having valid and, and uh, you know, validated resources as far as testing and treatment. And so, you know, again, hearkening back to COVID, thinking about we used, we were talking earlier on, there was kind of the wild west of testing, right? Like anybody, because there was no, uh, there was a, a a release of a lot of the requirements and administrative burden, but then there were a lot of invalid. And there is actually a, a lab in Southern California that there's concerns about their validity of their testing because they haven't been validated. So I think it's it's always a tough balance, but I think that's part of it. I will also say from a public health perspective um, and sort of on the government side, I, I continue to be concerned that we have a lot of categorical funding that's disease-specific. So, you know, HIV funding, STD funding, COVID funding, and we didn't have early on flexibility to use that more easily. And, and it does take things like a state emergency to use those resources. And we haven't invested over time. We've kind of underinvested and, and decimated our public health infrastructure. We've started to build it back up in the last two and a half years, but we're talking about 
20 to 30 years of, of not having enough and trying to slowly build that back up. So I think those, to me, are some of the administrative things and trying to put that in perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyone, do you want to yeah. jump in? I feel like Dr. T oh, might have some thoughts um, on those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there are um, there have been many challenges along the way, especially for community-based clinics that... Um, have the longest relationships of, of trust. So I think we were assuming at Magnet, who is one of the largest providers of PrEP in our country, that we would be one of the first response, like we would get a robust amount of vaccine from the day it arrived in the state, that we would be leading in the response. Um, and I'm very proud that we have been leading in the response, but it hasn't beca- been because we've had a lot of vaccine. It's because we've been trying to um, to empower the community to mobilize through our HIV advocacy network, to advocate at all levels of government, to declare these states of emergency. It took 78 days for our federal government from the first reported case in the U.S. to declare a state of emergency, which is not only unacceptable, but it was incredibly harmful to a community that will have scars long beyond the healing of the actual impacts that they experienced. Um, this impact this will have long lasting impact on mental health. Um, people who had to isolate will have impacts on their stability in terms of having to take time off of work, perhaps losing their jobs, maybe not having money for their rent or food. Like there are a variety of impacts that will be long lasting because of the inaction of federal government in this time. And I think even here in the state, we did the best we could in a complicated situation, but when it's a new public health crisis, Everyone has to like get all of their ducks in a row in their own shop <laughs> before they can start helping everyone else. And so they're, what, for the community, they wanted action right now. I often talk about things as like microwave issues versus oven bake issues, you know, the things that like people want the microwave response to right now versus um, the things that really require a thoughtful preheat and then an oven. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, and, and we... Um, I think what we haven't learned over time is how do we take those microwave responses and carry them over from crisis to crisis? We always go straight to like, what did we learn and how do we get into preheat as quickly as we can? But there are some winnable battles from crisis to crisis that I think that could be microwave issues that we should document from this time of impacts and figure out how do we overcome some of the natural pitfalls and red tape that are going to occur we know that states of emergency um, may not m- mean immediate a- new access to vaccine, but what we do know, is, especially from COVID, is it creates a more coordinated response. It creates the ability to share workforce when we do get enough vaccine. It creates flexibility in funding streams to re-divert funding from one place to another. But we've also seen how that can backfire when... Um, we shift funding away from one cause, which is still very much a crisis, <laughs> to respond to the new one. Um, we just saw the new state epi for HIV um, in the state come out yesterday, and for the first time we saw new cases. Now, that's expected coming out of COVID, um, but it's sad. We were on track to be one of the first cities to have zero new infections um, of HIV, and you know we are going to be dealing with COVID in some form for a long time, and we're still dealing with MPOX, and um, there are many lessons I think we can learn from this time on how to not fall into this trap of red tape. Yeah, I, I actually think that there's a, the, a question of 
bodily autonomy and access to to the resources that people need for testing. And uh, specifically with with MPOX, uh, MPX, it's a uh, you know it was different than COVID. COVID, you had this congregate setting testing where people could come in and a physician just sort of requisition broadly for surveillance or for for longer term testing and. That wasn't really available for MPX. So, you know, we still operate a collection site in Oakland and Alameda and all of these places where people could easily come and get swabs, um, but that's not necessarily allowed in in this um, this case. So that's that's one of those learnings where it's like, okay, this is a, a congregate setting testing program for public health outbreaks may be the way to go. Where when a public health emergency is declared, you sort of waive the the um, criteria needed to get a test, right? So it's it's something that could be implemented. And I know we we worry about our folks in Southern California too, who are doing uh, invalidated tests or not not properly validated tests. It's a it's a problem. And um, there's always someone out there to make money. And you know when we when we were founded as a public benefit corporation, we we had this choice of like, do we do we go the uh, corporate route where it's profit-based or do we go the nonprofit route where it's community-based? And we found this really nice happy medium where we get to balance the benefit for the public, the benefit for the planet, the benefit for the bottom line, which contributes to additional testing in the community, right? So I think there's there's so much to be learned uh, and so much to be carried through from from COVID into um, future, future public health uh, disasters. <laughs> Well, I actually wanted to kind of build on that because after, you know, what, two and a half years and counting of COVID, and for a while it just kind of seemed COVID hits, <laughs> shutdowns, uh, you know, social unrest, uh, political upheaval, murder hornets. I mean, it was just getting worse. <laughs> but specifically, I kind of want to hear from each of you from your, your different areas. Are we better prepared to deal with MPX as a result of having gone through what we have so far with uh, COVID or, you know, did it leave us more exposed or did it put us on the wrong path on anything or are there lessons that we should have learned that we have not? So starting with you, Dr. Rodriguez. Yeah, I think, I think we are better prepared in some ways. Um, uh, perhaps uh, a little um, worse in other ways. Um, the all starting with the ways that we're worse off. I think there's a lot of pandemic fatigue um, has hit, you know, the community. And so uh, there's certain groups and people that will are going to be less uh, amenable to public health measures. And um, so and also, you know, things have become very polarized and. Uh, that polarization does not help uh, in terms of containing a, a, a infectious disease. Um, the ways that we're better, I think, are that we, um, we've learned a bit about um, ramping up, like making testing more available, making uh, uh, treatments more available and, and vaccinations more available. Um, you know, good evidence of that is the recent uh, event in Oakland. I guess it was this past weekend where they 
uh, at uh, I think at a, a pride parade they were delivering um, uh, vaccinations for for mpox mm -hmm. and um, so th so we've uh, nationally and community wise come up with better ways to to you know address particular needs um, so I think you know we're we're in some ways better in, in some ways worse. Um, I do uh, also, uh, I can probably talk about this later, but um, we're pretty, uh, here in the Bay Area, pretty, pretty, in some ways, fortunate um, as compared to other communities. And um, certainly statewide, there are rural communities and and nationally there are other communities that don't have the resources and don't have the uh you know programs that we have here and so uh my concern is has to do with those communities mm -hmm. dr pan sure i think to just sort of echo i think thinking about trust and trust in public health and the polarization i think that is agreed kind of where we are worse off i think um the, the counter side to that is I think, you know, it's emphasized even more so than ever. And I think we knew this before, but just that this needs to be an all-of-community approach. It's not just even an all-of-government approach. or It needs to be an all-of-community approach and to really work with trusted partners on the ground and messengers and, and service deliverers that are on the ground. But I think the challenges remain around how decentralized um, all of those things are um, here. Um, I think a lot of great things, though. I, yeah, like just thinking outside the box and how we deliver services. So, I mean, I think the pros and cons of mentioning, you know, testing for one disease and, and thinking about how to do that in the community. I think it's also cautionary from a clinical side, though, you know, I don't know that everybody wants to get a perianal swab in the middle of a parking lot. So, you know, I think there's there's sort of, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's some differences that we need to be to be cautious of. Um, but I think, I think really, again, being innovative and thinking about public-private partnerships, I do want to just shout out again that Renegade has been a great partner and really immediately kind of we figured out how to, to, to work with Renegade to be surge capacity for public health lab testing. And I do feel like that is something that got ramped up much more quickly. You know, again, there are still we still need to improve the access. Um, but compared to, you know, where we've been with other emerging diseases, thinking about Zika, I don't know if people remember that, but, you know, there was such a funnel and a bottleneck. You know, there was just one lab in, in Atlanta doing it for the whole country for weeks and weeks and weeks and and then there were pregnant women who were waiting to know about their pregnancy and they had to wait weeks so i think that i feel like they, that lesson got learned we got testing out there we have over i forget how many hundreds of labs in the in the state at least just this state even doing lab testing and we need more but but we did ramp that up more quickly so i think there's some great lessons learned like that and again really just getting information funding and messages and working with partners to create messages sooner um, engaging the community sooner, I think, is and, and having everything with an equity lens and really looking about allocation of resources with an equity lens and, and really trying, um, but continues to be a challenge, but how to get, you know, equity means getting more resources to the people that are disproportionately impacted. Um, and, and still people with resources are still going to be really good <laughs> at finding or driving to wherever it is and finding the, the place to go and can take off time from work or don't have to work at that time. So... I think there's still a lot of challenges there we need to, to address. Dr. T, you've talked uh, quite a bit about, mm -hmm. obviously, the echoes and the lessons learned and not learned from HIV. But specifically in, in the COVID era, 
helped or, or left us more vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, I think um, community-based organizations have always been a strong partner with public health, but I think COVID-19 taught public health how to best mobilize community partners in a way that um, I think we always imagined, but fully realized um, the power of reaching communities that were never going to walk into large hospitals, never going to walk into a clinic. Um, that I think became very real in COVID. And we learned how to create a more accessible set of um, literature and educational resources, like things that we always talked about, but usually only did in English and Spanish. We realized, oh, there's actually a lot more people than just speak English and Spanish. We need to do all of the things so that all people who are at risk have um, access to these sites. Where I think um, things crumbled a bit are, um, I think we got really good and really tired during COVID. And so there were some lessons about coordinated messaging, like statewide coordinated messaging, statewide coordination of resources and vaccination, um, statewide guidelines on who's eligible and who's not, which became very messy during part of MPOX and very hard for community-based organizations to straddle. If one county is um, having very wide eligibility and another is not, one moves to second doses, one stays firm. Like that became a real issue. And then it became an equity issue because people who had the ability to drive to another county go stand in a long line, do all of these things, were the first to get access, um, and some then s still did not. And I think during COVID, we did a better job of that. We actually did figure out from county to county, how do we coordinate? Or if you want to do a big mass vaccination um, event in San Francisco, and we have a bunch of extra vaccine in Alameda County, let's figure out a way to coordinate on that. Yeah. Um, and that hasn't fully been realized, I think, in the same ways that we did during COVID. Yeah, there was some good messaging, I remember, early on when, for example, we were trying to get medical professionals and, and nursing staffs and, and, you know, get them the mask, get them, you know, they need the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of folks who were able to say, okay, I'm working from home, I can wait. Um, and that, I thought that was at least a good messaging mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. did come out through. So, yeah, better I mean, off or not? <clears throat> when I think about the, the start of COVID, which was a very frenetic, uh, <laughs> active time for, for Renegade Bio, I mean, yeah. we were uh, incorporated on in March 18th, 2020. So the World Health Organization declared the pandemic on the 11th. We were incorporated the 18th. We were testing the United Nations April 14th in New York City, and we were building our lab in California at the same time. Um, when I think about the learnings just I've learned and, and the community of folks that work with us um, have learned, it's the, the public-private uh, partnerships. It's the um, meeting community where they are, going to them. I mean, our first uh, COVID event was Pride is a Riot, the Pride Parade in San Francisco. We you know, rented the top of a school in, in uh, Dolores Park and had people come uh, from the protest, and it was a free testing event, and then had them come back a week later. And the question was like, is disease spreading during the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, which was a big thing erupting at that time. So, or continuing at that time, I should say. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think the real key is if you want people to have access to healthcare, you have to bring it to them. Um, and part of our 
our mission at Renegade is to, to not only improve access to di diagnostics for all people who need them, but to deliver those in the home and to make sure people have that sort of comfort and safety to go out and, and um, live their lives <laughs> in the way they, they need to. Um, the, the bigger public health um, side of things, I think, you know, what we learned with MPX is, you know, had CDPH come earlier, we would have been happy to run faster and get things done quicker in the microwave fashion. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we're so grateful for the, the partnership and the ability to support community in such a, a big way. So um, those, those relationships, those networks that, that we've developed in the process are, are just amazing. Great. Uh, just before we continue, we've got a microphone set up there by on the other side of the stage if anyone has questions they would like to ask uh go ahead and and uh, line up and we'll work them into our discussion here otherwise michelle and i the only two people without a doctorate on this stage <laughs> no 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 <laughs> I, do, I don't have a doctorate by the way. i'm a master's level oh, molecular immunologist okay. i don't have that either <laughs> Hey, I barely pass how to use my microwave. <laughs> but no, please, we uh, would love to hear, you know, your questions. And then we just ask that you direct them to a speaker specifically for time purposes. Um, so with all this being said, right, like we've learned a lot. We're learning more. We're continuing to learn. Um, I think that this all is also leading us to maybe think about the next pox or the next disease and how we prep for it. And so I'd love to hear from um, each of you, you know, is there, I'm, feel free to share anything that you shouldn't share, like maybe, you know, a case or, or something that <laughs> <laughs> they tell you don't tell people because they will get worried. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like we just want to know, we, we need the info. Anyway, I'll go, we'll go the other way around Craig and then we'll end with Dr. Rodriguez. Yeah. I mean, there, well, there's so much. I feel I feel confronted by your. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I think. Well, actually, can you go back to the question? Just just repeat the. Yeah, I'm, yeah. right. Like, so we're thinking about this, and I, I can't help but think that each of you are probably thinking about thinking about the next confronting the next thing. Right. I don't know what the next thing is. Right. Right. The next pox or or disease, and how uh, you might be kind of rolling that into what you do. Yeah, so, so from our perspective, you know, or from my perspective, I think that um, you know, global warming is a huge problem that is going to continue to influence disease spread, right? As vectors move further north, the disease is going to spread further north. So we continuously you know, look at the diseases that are up and say, okay, how do these diseases work? The, the really interesting thing with MPX was... Um, when, when we were approached by CDPH, as I looked and I started reading, how does this virus actually mutate? And how does it grow? How does it reproduce? How does it, what is the mechanism of this virus? And we realized that it actually packages up the, the material it needs to produce messenger RNA by itself, right? So that was kind of the hint to go after both nucleic acid uh, RNA and DNA. So I think as we continue to look at the spread of disease due to global warming or whatever other causes, we will continue to look at the, the molecular genetics of those viruses and develop tests and, and assays that support the detection of those in people. 
Yeah, I think um, for me, I'm really curious uh, and the foundation is really curious about continuing to monitor what these new moments of public health crisis look like at the intersection of HIV and that crisis. Like we know in this moment, actually, that many of the confirmed impox cases are among people living with HIV and that for most um, people who are living with HIV, if they have the luxury of access to the care and treatment that they need, that they're going to live long and manage lives and that HIV on the list of things is actually um, not going to be the thing um, that's going to be the biggest health crisis of their current um, health. But we don't necessarily know what the long-term impacts of HIV and COVID are going to be, or the long-term impacts of HIV, COVID, and impox, if you had all three. Um, and we've been really bad as a country about collecting data around LGBTQ health-related issues because we haven't effectively collected data about LGBTQ people for a very long time. This was a fight during COVID. <laughs> um, and one of actually the proudest moments of my career um, before I moved to San Francisco was um, in getting Oregon um, to pass the Data Equity Act, which was the first state in the country to require all entities funded through the public health department to report um, race, ethnicity, age, language, disability, sexual orientation, and gender identity data of all patients. Um, there's a new database being built, and by 2024, um, you will be fined as a provider if you are not reporting on all demographics, um, unless the patient declines, of course. Um, but I think it's just a crucially important moment of our time to learn about the intersectional identity of the people that we're serving and how health disparities are impacting certain communities more based on the identities that they sit in between. So I think um, I think there are two related areas that I would mention and, and kind of building on all this. Like there's data and sort of data infrastructure and communications. And I think as far as data, I mean, we still, again, have a very decentralized health system, a very decentralized public health system, honestly, especially if you think about it federally. Um, so being able to collect data, because and especially with an emerging new thing, you want to collect the data quickly and learn from it, right? I do think to briefly highlight, we've, we have some great, um, we're moving a little bit faster and microwaving some, some quick vaccine effectiveness studies, right? That's happening a little bit faster and we're, we're learning to be more nimble on some of those things. But I think continuing to build and invest in sort of data modernization and infrastructure to be able to collect data, require it, but then actually have the infrastructure to receive it and analyze it and have all that is, is really important as we have new diseases. And then communications, I mean, again, you know, I hear you loud and clear. I think, you know, having the right resources and, and then being able to get information out. And, and I think to the audience, I'd say, you know, really being cautious. I think there's so many pros and cons to our current world of social media and so much mis and disinformation out there. So trying to find reliable sources that you trust and that you, but I realize that's hard, right? When there's a field that I'm not versed in, it's hard for me to know what to trust, but, but really trying to, to look for, um, organizations that, that, you know, do have a, a long-standing reputation in what they're doing and that you already trust for other reasons to get your information from. And on our side, I think we need to continue to work on getting information out more quickly and having more bi-directional communication, I think is so important because I, I think we can all get through anything together if we're communicating about it, but I, acknowledging that, you know, that's all, you can never communicate too much or too often, I think, even on a day-to-day -day basis, but especially during a crisis. Yeah, building. Uh, I agree with everything that uh, that you said. 
Um, I think my focus and, and our focus from an emergency department standpoint is is uh, to serve the pa patient populations that we um, whose only health care access occurs there and sort of, as you said, uh, bringing uh, health care to, to where they are. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so what we're doing um, it, in terms of COVID and, and starting to do in terms of MPOX is we're uh, looking at providing messaging, uh, public health messaging in the emergency department. We, we've uh, just completed a, a national trial of that um, to, to dispel disinformation and, and give them uh, reliable information about for, uh, COVID vaccines, for example. And, and we just completed a, a, a trial of that, a randomized trial, and found that uh, it's uh, very effective uh, bringing it to patients in the emergency department where they, they seek care um, and using that as a public health platform uh, to, for diseases like that. So um, that's sort of where I'm at in terms of future directions. And, um, yeah. Well, let me ask each of you for a specific recommendation uh, for people, you know, people are, will be watching and listening to this from across the country. But a specific recommendation of a place, whether it's a website or a phone number to call or some, what resource to go to, to stay up to date on this or if they have questions about this. Start with you, Dr. T. Um, of course, I'll say San Francisco <laughs> Foundation. Um, so, you know, we have been um, definitely leading um, on trying to stay on top of information. So all of the um, town halls that we've done, all of the frequently asked questions, everything in both English and Spanish can be found on our website, which is sfaf.org. And there is a inbox button right at the top of the page um, that directs you to those resources and the number to our hotline if you have questions. Thanks. Yeah, so um, information on MPOX, uh, information on COVID, information on STI testing, and all of that can be found at renegade.bio or testthepeople.org, which is our sort of community-based side of our, of our business that supports testing. Great. Dr. Pam? I'd put a plug in for your local public health department. So depending where you are, that's at one place to start um, because then that uh, local public health department is is funneling information from, you know, the CDC, the state health department, um, hopefully also partnering with community-based organizations. But then that's where you can find localized resources, too, whether it's, you know, where to get a test or which providers might have X, Y, or Z. Um, so I think as a prior local health department uh, uh, official and, and knowing how closely we at the state level work with our locals, I think that is really a good place to be looking for information that's up-to-date and resources. Dr. Rodriguez? I would put a, a plug in for uh, a lot of the resources at UCSF. Um, specifically, uh, we have uh, weekly town halls that are uh, the broadcasts are available on YouTube. Great. And so uh, we had a, an excellent one uh, just uh, two weeks ago um, discussing MPOX. And uh, so if you Google that, uh, UCSF Town Hall and MPOX, you should be able to uh, come up with that video. Great. Thank you. 
Well, it looks like all of everyone here, at least at the, uh, in the Toby room at the Commonwealth of California, are experts. We have no questions from our audience. We got this. Oh. <laughs> They're all doctors as well. So. <laughs> Good. Hey, my name is Sam. I just want to ask, why did I get sick from the second monkeypox vaccine? I was sick for 48 hours, like fever, uh, body ache, uh, throat ache, everything. Thank you. Well, that means it's working, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll start, or go ahead. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, it, there's variability in, in uh, responses to, to vaccines, and, and um, it, it, uh, it, there's, it, I would say that there's not a lot of predictability about whether you're going to have, you know, such a reaction. But um, I, I do agree that it, that probably means that it, it, it is it's effective. Yeah. <laughs> it's your immune system showing like it's responding because it got exposed once and now it's you know being exposed yeah. again but it is very it's unpredictable as far as who's going to have stronger reactions but but often with with many vaccines the second dose is where you might get a little more reaction yeah and, and the main message is that um uh any effects that you might have from a vaccine are far uh are negligible as compared to the true disease. So you should never, that goes with regard to COVID, influenza, MPOX. Um, you really should always get vaccinated. Okay, another question. Hi, my name is Kyle. Uh, my question is for Dr. Pam. Um, I know you've mentioned about the lack of stockpile really on the national level and about how we're reactive um, is there, you know, with COVID and now um, MPOX and XYZ down the pipe, is there more of a dialogue around how to, on the federal level, moving from reactive to proactive? I think yes, but I think it's hard to predict, right? Like there are hundreds of different viruses out there and there are evolutions happening of, you know, what we call zoonotic diseases and things like that. So I actually, in many ways, feel grateful that we had a vaccine early, even though there wasn't enough of it. We have more coming. They have ramped up so that, you know, they're working with the manufacturer to have more. Um, and it is really hard to predict, but I, th I think there are ongoing dialogues. Um, I think that's when it gets hard as far as, you know, cycles of administration and the, the legislature and, you know, getting sort of the resources, especially the long-term investments. Um, but I think, um, you know, we do, I think at all levels, learn from every one of these experiences. Thank you. Sure. Anyone else? Hi, thank you for the panel. That was really interesting. Um, quick question. Do you have any comments on the public health emergency in New York with polio and how anti-vaxxers are going to have an impact on public health? And how anti-vaxxers what? Are going to have an impact on public health. An impact on public health. Yes, I mean, uh, so <laughs> I think, and I will, do, I will say, like, vaccines are actually something that I, as a pediatric infectious disease doctor, really passionate about. And, you know, it was one of our most important kind of public health impacts, you know, over the centuries, right? After sanitation and hygiene, I think vaccines are something that has really eradicated diseases like smallpox, almost eliminated polio until, you know, we've had disruptions in other places because of, you know, wars or other things. And then in the United States, like, having decreased vaccines 
vaccine confidence, which actually is another down side, I think, of the COVID pandemic has been very concerning. There are, and with the pandemic, there are measles outbreaks all over the world, too. And our last, you know, uh, outbreak here in California with, of measles was unvaccinated people because of vaccine confidence. So um, as far as the state of emergency and our concern in California, you know, we do have very high polio vaccination rates. And really what's happened there is a pocket of unvaccinated people. Um, so uh, we are watching this closely, but I think the risk is really low. But I do worry in general about vaccine preventable diseases and, and vaccine sort of rates going down in general and how we're going to see resurgences of things that are preventable. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Oh, one more. <laughs> oh, comment and question. Comment, Michelle, I love your shoes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, question. Uh, so in comparison to the COVID vaccine, do you feel like there's a higher or lower willingness to get vaccinated? Just because uh, serving um, in a community-based organization where um, we have undocumented family, families um, who don't have the access or are scared to go somewhere, um, I need to determine what we need to do to step in just because the pandemic that fatigue that you discussed mm-hmm. was a lot for us um, because we, we don't focus on health care to that extent and we held uh, seven clinics to vaccinate over 2,000 people and it was a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from what we've been hearing from community at our clinic, um, you know, there was such a demand. Um, and I think because so many folks who were very brave about telling their stories and the impact that Impox was having on them, the very real pain, the, the very real fight that they had to go through to get access to testing, to treatment, um, that we haven't seen the same level of folks talking about hesitancy as we did during COVID. Um, but I will say that, um, you know, we early on, we offered to many of our um, Black-led and um, Latinx-led serving organizations in town opportunities to partner. And it was, um, at first, difficult to figure out how to effectively do that. Like, they were saying, folks are not going to come to, you know, the sexual health clinic in the Castro or even come to our organization if they think it's an impox clinic, because that is a right now in the media, a gay thing. Um, and so I think that is an, a moment where we had to look back at what we learned in COVID and what we've looked, um, that we've learned throughout you know, 40 years of the HIV epidemic on how to respond in a culturally affirming way of meeting community where they're at and trying to create these combined clinics for access. Um, so I do think it's taking a different form. Um, it's really figuring out how to reduce stigma related to impact so that folks don't feel, I don't know that they have hesitancy. I think there is stigma that's preventing folks from doing it. It's slightly different. Thank you. We'll take one more question and then um, we also have some, some wine, some goodies that we can spend some time together and also continue asking questions of our speakers as they stick around. Thank you. I feel very lucky, last question. Um, In terms of what you were just talking about with stigma, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how we can prevent negative stigma from being a thing rather than having to destigmatize diseases and things like that after the fact. Yeah, I mean, I, um, for the last several years um, throughout COVID and through this moment, have really um, been trying to work closely with partners in both public health and media 
Um, I think that we have a large responsibility and platform to tell the narrative that community will digest and spread among their social networks. And when we, even when we are following the data and we say something like this disease is um, impacting mainly gay and bisexual men, um, what people take away from that is this is a gay and bisexual issue. Um, and I think we just have to be really careful about how we craft our messaging moving forward, how we create then messaging within a public health crisis that's going to resonate with a community. Because I think we also saw gay and bisexual men in this moment say, um, I want the deep, like, don't say this could impact anybody. Like, this is impacting my community. Take it seriously. So it's finding that balance um, of getting fact-based messaging out to the people who need to hear it, who are at the highest risk, um, creating messaging that resonates with folks, and um, trying to overcome some of the mistakes we've made in the past by over-politicizing or over-stigmatizing an issue related to one community when, in fact, this is um, an infection that spreads skin-to-skin uh, -to, -skin to anyone who it wants to. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to all of you who've joined us this evening, uh, those who are here and those who are online. And of course, special thanks to our speakers, Craig with Renegade Bio, Dr. T with San Francisco AIDS Foundation, our California State Epidemiologist, Dr. Pan, and Dr. Rodriguez, who's with UCSF School of Medicine. And I'm going to leave it to John, who's going to give you special instructions to meet us right out that door. And give she last just, thanks. She just literally gave it. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, thanks to Gilead Sciences and Renegade Bio for helping make tonight's program possible. Um, I think you all know there's a door back there. You go out there, there will be some, we can finish up the wine. But uh, I'm sorry? And also our friends at TransClinic yes. who are also here tonight. Thank you yes. for supporting the program. <laughs> so thank you all and thank you everyone watching and listening online find more at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS stay safe we'll see you again in the future you've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts Google Play and Stitcher if you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.